delight to be with you on this Lord's Day. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. I think it was about two years ago I preached here, and I think Pastor Tolley was sick that day, and I preached on the first 16 verses of this chapter. Well, you have me for four sessions, high sessions, not the proper term probably, but times of worship. And uh, God willing, we're going to go from verse 17 in John 11 all the way to the end, verse 57. Now, you know what this chapter is about, probably. It's kind of like the love chapter, you know, 1 Corinthians um, 13. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we often call the resurrection chapter. You could call this chapter the resurrection chapter because Jesus goes to Bethany and raises a friend who had died, and his name is Lazarus. I sometimes struggle to say that word. I had a Japanese friend that really struggled to say that word. She always said Lazarus. Um, but I hope I can get it out right today, Lazarus. And But the miracle of his resurrection doesn't happen till verse 43. And so there's a lot of preliminary information that the Spirit of God wanted us to know and so he inspired John to write much about this incident and so today we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 27 and the title of my sermon is the resurrection and the life and those words come from one of the verses that we find here so follow in your Bibles with me as I read beginning at verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, She went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of the 11th chapter of John's gospel. It has immense value to us. It contains the historical narrative, or is the historical narrative, that conveys what I would consider to be the greatest of all our Lord's miracles. And that is raising 
Lazarus from the dead. Now he raised two others from the dead that's recorded in the gospel as well. And so what a great miracle. Jesus is the resurrection and the life in the face of this most powerful adversary we call death. Now the first 16 verses of this chapter talks about Lazarus being sick, the sisters uh, sending someone to ask Jesus to come and heal him. And Jesus delayed in his coming. But he loved this man who was sick on his deathbed who died. In fact, we're told in verse 3, when the sister sent to him, the message was, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Jesus loved Lazarus. And not only did he love Lazarus, he loved his two sisters. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Well, we're going to see the interaction of Jesus with these two sisters. First, Martha, God willing, tonight with Mary. Next Lord's Day, we'll see his interaction with the dead man, Lazarus, when he calls him forth from the grave. And then, God willing, next Lord's Day evening, we'll look at the reaction of the people to that great miracle. But the love of Jesus is demonstrated for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in the events that unfold in this historical narrative. So John, here beginning in verse 17, tells the story of Jesus arriving in Bethany. And he tells this lengthy story um, in several stages, which leads up to what we might call the main event, the resurrection of Lazarus. And so we have his interaction with Martha, his interaction with Mary, and then, of course, the interaction with Lazarus and raising him from the dead. And in the midst of these episodes where we see how Jesus interacted with these three people, we see these two things. We see the last of seven signs that show forth the power and compassion of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Seven signs John brings out. Perhaps he did that because seven is the number of perfection. Uh, he made, turned water into wine. He healed a nobleman's son. There, there are several miracles here. Well, this is the seventh of the seven signs, and it's the greatest of them all. But we also find contained in these verses uh, one of the great I am statements. If you know anything about the Gospel of John, you know that's where we find Jesus on seven occasions saying, I am whatever. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Well, let's examine these verses about our Lord's dealing with, Mar with uh, uh, Martha. 
And that's where we find this grand declaration, I am the resurrection and the life. Our Lord's interaction with Martha highlights three things. I want you to look in this text with me at these three thoughts. Comfort in death, conflict in death, and counsel in death. We begin with this first thought, comfort in death. We learn from verses 17, 18, and 19 that when Jesus arrived in Bethany, that many Jews had come to comfort and console Martha and Mary in the loss of their brother. Jesus himself would offer comfort and consolation as well. Look again with me at the text, verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. We're told about Bethany, its location. It was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Bethany was the village where these three siblings lived. Uh, John gives a few geographical details about Bethany. It was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, three kilometers. Literal reading is 15 stadia. The readers of the New Testament know this village because of what took place when Jesus came to see these sisters after the death of their brothers. Being so close to Jerusalem confirms the reason why his disciples were troubled that Jesus would return there. You see that in verses 6 and 8. You see it also in verse 16. Thomas saying, well, let us go that we may die with him. Jesus shouldn't get back so close to Jerusalem because the religious leaders there want to put him to death. By the way, the time frame here, we're only about a week and a half from Calvary, from Golgotha, when Jesus goes to bear our sins in his own body on the tree. So the proximity of Jerusalem, as mentioned here, to Bethany heightens our awareness. Geographically, Jesus is taking some risk to come so close to the capital. But we know the end of the story this all anticipates his death. Bethany was located on the southeastern slopes of the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. It was located near the road to Jericho. We read in Mark 21 or Matthew 21, after the triumphant entry, Jesus spent at least one night there. And then we read in Luke 24 that from a site near Bethany, Jesus ascended into heaven after his death and resurrection. But the most significant event that occurred in Bethany was the resurrection of Lazarus from the grave. When Jesus arrived in Bethany, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. That's what it says in verse 17. You also see that in verse 39. So he was really 
dead. He was alive, we think, when the sisters uh, sent word. Well, obviously he was alive when they sent word to Jesus about his illness. But he must have died shortly after the messengers reached him with this word. So Jesus didn't go to Bethany for the funeral. That had already taken place. So he comes at this time to comfort and console the bereaved. Now, of course, there's this other purpose in mind. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But prior to that, these two sisters were grieving. They were brokenhearted. And he joins all those who came to their house to comfort and console them. That's what friends do for people they love. Burials, as you well know, took place quickly in those days. We read in Acts chapter 5 of the death of Ananias and Sapphira, and they were buried the same day they died. And that's true even in poor countries today where the dead are not embalmed. I went to Bulgaria almost 30 years ago with a man some of you might know. He was a Presbyterian preacher, Harry Miller. And we preached for three or four weeks several places in the southwestern part of that country. It was called Little Russia in those days, very compliant with the Soviet state. I went with the pastor of the church in Petrovich, where we were, to visit a man on his deathbed. That man died that evening, and the funeral was held the next morning. I joined the procession which went from his house to the seminary and opened beer. When they buried him, they just put a cloth over his face and, and dirt was poured into the grave. A quick burial. And the reasons are obvious. So there would have been a similar procession, I'm sure, accompanying the body of Lazarus to the grave. It would have consisted of relatives and friends, perhaps even hired mourners. They did that in that day. I think there were hired mourners in this funeral I've just described in Bulgaria. Uh, I know I felt like I was in New Orleans for a while because they, they had, I don't know if you'd call it a band or not, but they were playing the trumpets and tubas and trombones, that very solemn music that we sometimes hear in things that take place in, in New Orleans. There was probably loud wailing, more people mourning the death. Mark chapter 5, verse 38 says, people were weeping and wailing loudly at the death of Jairus' daughter. And I suspect the same is true here. It's likely that that Lazarus was entombed on the day of his death. If not the day, if he died in the evening, they probably did that the next day. Because decomposition begins quickly, and all the more so in hot climates. 
Later, when Jesus instructed the men to remove the stone from the tomb, you remember what Martha said? Verse 39, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. I like the King James here. He stinketh by now. He's been dead four days. In the hot Palestinian climate, decay would have already begun. And so burial was done quickly. Ever since we had some company from England visit us about 30 years ago, they embarrassed me. They knew more about our war between the states than I did. So I started buying secondhand books wherever I could find them. And I've got a library of 50, 60 uh, books. And, and I've educated myself a little bit there. And I remember reading about the Battle of Gettysburg, which took place July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, of course, in Pennsylvania, right in the middle of the summer. There were over 7,000 men who died and over 5,000 horses and mules that died during those three days. And they said the historical records tell us that the stench that came from the battlefield could be smelled from miles away. That's why people were buried quickly in those days. So Jesus, they would say, they thought he came late. But Jesus was never late. He was always on time doing his Father's will. And so when he arrived in Bethany, he witnessed this outpouring of love and sympathy and friendship from those who knew these sisters. Verse 19, many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And they very well may have spoken, Matthew Henry says, to them of him, not only of the good name he left behind, but of the happy state he was gone to. That's what Christians do, isn't it? We gather around those who've lost a loved one. That loved one who died and gone to be with the Lord. And we seek to comfort and cheer them. Now I grew up Southern Baptist. And didn't become Reformed until many years later. So I didn't grow up learning catechism. Like you children are learning. And are privileged to do it. You'll be thankful someday that your parents made you learn it. So I've come to appreciate the shorter catechism. I've also come to appreciate the Heidelberg catechism. And the first question and answer of the Heidelberg catechism is as good and solid as the first in the shorter catechism. Now I have to read it because my memory doesn't work real well these days. But here's the first question. What is your only comfort in life and in death. And oh, what an answer. That I am not my own, 
but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What comfort and consolation there is in that. And it's that kind of consolation and comfort that these people were giving to Mary and to Martha. The venerable Matthew Henry said, where there are mourners, there ought to be comforters. It is a duty we owe to those that are in sorrow to mourn with them and to comfort them. And our mourning with them will be some comfort to them. Well, the text now takes us from comfort in death to conflict in death. The words of Martha when she went out to greet Jesus reflect a great conflict whirling around in the deep recesses of her heart. Note starting in verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. When Martha heard that Jesus had arrived, she immediately went out to greet him. Martha heard that, or Mary heard that Jesus arrived, but she didn't go out to greet him. John highlights for us differences in these two sisters. Martha heard Jesus coming. She went out and met him. Mary remained seated in their house. Now, John wrote this for a reason, didn't he? This is just not filler. This is the inspired Word of God. When news came at the house of Mary and Martha that Jesus had come to Bethany, Martha goes out to meet him. Mary stays receded in the house. And their reaction to this news reveals a difference in the personalities and the sisters. What we see here reflects what we learn about these two sisters in the Gospel of Luke. Would you turn to the passage with me there in chapter 10 of the Gospel of Luke, the last few verses of uh, this chapter? Verse 38, As they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. 
But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. You see the difference in the sisters there? Martha's busy. She's showing hospitality to Jesus while Mary sat at the feet of the Lord listening to him. So Martha is energetic. Mary is meditative. John MacArthur says Martha was the bustling active one. Mary was the quite contemplative one. And so according to these personality types, we would expect Martha to rush out to meet Jesus while Mary would remain home weeping with her friends. I think there's a lesson here for us. God blesses and uses people of different personality and character types. We are not all the same. And one personality type is not necessarily better than another, is it? Each personality type has its own strength, but each has its own weaknesses. In Luke 10, Mary was applauded for her quiet devotion and Martha was admonished for her zealous activity. But on this occasion, in John 11, it seems that Martha has the better response and received the greater blessing. So we can say there is a time for quiet reflection, but there's also a time for active service. And God happens to make the right balance between the two of those. We need wisdom to know when these should be exercised. So Martha runs out to meet Jesus. And what did she say to Jesus? Lord. And that means more than just sir. Lord, Master, the one to whom we bow. Lord, if you had been here with my brother, he would not have died. Can you hear the disappointment in those words? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's as though she's saying, Lord, why didn't you come? We sent you word. Four days passed and you come. And we know that if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. She's airing a bit of frustration here about our Lord's delay. She knew the power of Jesus to heal, and she knew if he'd been present, surely her brother would not have died. That big word, if. If you had been here. It's a word we often use, but we need to realize that it's always futile to imagine what might have been if. But Mary's response, 
reflects a grieving heart. She and Mary had probably been saying this together because when we come tonight to verse 32, you see when Mary finally came, she said the same thing. So the two of them had been reflecting with one another. Oh, if only Jesus would come. Our brother would be well. He would heal him. That Jesus could have healed him is certainly true. But it is also true that his presence in Bethany was not required for that to happen. There's a miracle that's recorded at the end of John chapter 4. The nobleman's son, that, that government official, sends word, comes to Jesus. Jesus didn't go. He said, he, he told him to go back home. He'll find his son well. Not present. Not necessary for Jesus to be present. It was obviously not the Lord's will for Lazarus to be healed. Or Jesus would have healed him. But Martha's grief momentarily eclipsed what she knew to be true. But that often happens to us in the midst of sorrow and grief. When our eyes are clouded by tears, we often fail to see the great love of God, His sovereignty for our good. But Jesus does not fail us when sorrow floods our soul. He is with us at all times and He bids us to cast our cares upon Him. Why? Because He cares for us. So you have worries and sorrows. You have grief and anxiety. Cast these concerns upon the Lord. For He cares for us. That's 1 Peter 5, 7. In times of sorrow. However, things we know to be true are often lost in the dark. Philip Richards offers this word of encouragement. What we can be sure of is that all our trials are apportioned by the hand of a holy, good, and loving God. Then he quotes Paul's words, Romans 8, 28. We know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And then Mr. Phillips says, precisely because we do not always feel that this is true, we need to know that it is true. And we need to know it when things are going good, so when the bottom falls out and troubles come, we can be strong. But Martha's feelings overshadowed her knowledge on this occasion. But we see confidence in her words uh, following this statement which reflected disappointment. We have this strong statement of faith. Look at verse 22. But even now, even though you didn't come, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. 
So despite her disappointment, she believed Jesus had a unique relation with the Father and that the Father would give him whatever he asked. Now it doesn't appear that she was thinking of a resurrection. Later, when Jesus asked that the stone be removed from the tomb, it was Martha said, Lord, that's not a good idea. He's been dead four days. We roll that stone back, there's going to be this awful odor coming out. But what she did know was to ask for help, whatever form that might take. She knew that somehow Jesus could bring good out of this tragedy. So she's reaching out in faith. D.A. Carson says even now in her bereavement, she has not lost her confidence in Jesus and still recognizes the peculiar intimacy he enjoys with his Father, an intimacy that ensures unprecedented fruitfulness in his prayers. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I wonder if Elijah... Hoffman had this scripture in mind when he wrote this hymn. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for his own. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus. Jesus can help me, and Jesus alone. Martha simply asked Jesus to help as only he could. And if that was good enough for Martha, that ought to be good enough for us. Well, we come to one final point. From comfort in death and conflict in death, we now turn to counsel in death. Jesus offered counsel to Martha that has joyfully resonated in the hearts of believers down through the centuries. <clears throat> Notice beginning in verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? <coughs> she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now, our Lord's counsel is in two parts. <clears> the <throat> first thing Jesus said to Martha was, Your brother will rise again. That is a wonderful word of assurance. Your brother will rise again. On the surface, this could be taken either to mean the general resurrection on the last day or of an immediate resurrection. 
The first, resurrection on the last day, is absolutely true and is a comfort to all whose loved ones die in the faith. And that is the meaning Martha put on the words. For she replied, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She was fully persuaded of a future resurrection of the people of God. Now the Old Testament scriptures are not rich and full as the New Testament about the resurrection, but there's ample instruction to know that after this life, a child of God, Psalm 23 ends this way, will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting uh, contempt. Martha believed what the Pharisees believed about the resurrection at the end of the age. Now, for all the legalism of the Pharisees, they affirmed the resurrection of the dead. And we know that other religious party, the Sadducees, did not affirm it. We read that in the Gospels. Even Paul brought that out in Acts 23. He, he got the Pharisees and the Sadducees disputing at one of his trials with one another over this subject of the resurrection of the dead. Well, it's likely that Martha had received instruction about this from Jesus, but how much of it did she remember? Jesus had said many things about the resurrection. You, you find it in John 5, John 6. There's so many places. Martha could be comforted to know that her brother would rise again. But Jesus meant something more than a resurrection on the last day. And so the second thing Jesus said to Martha was, I am the resurrection and the life. These words constitute the fifth of the seven I am statements recorded in this gospel. He didn't say that he believed in the resurrection, though he did. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. You note that difference? He didn't say, I believe in the resurrection and eternal life. No, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. There's no resurrection or eternal life outside of Jesus. To say that he's the resurrection and the life is to say he is the Son of God. And that's what Martha confesses there in verse 27. So he's the resurrection. To be resurrected is to be restored to life after death. And Jesus has the power to raise the dead. He will raise the dead on the last day, but he has the power to raise the dead when and where he wills. In the Good Shepherd discourse, John 10 verse 18, he affirmed he had authority to take up his own life after death. And that was part of the reading from the larger catechism this morning. So he's the resurrection and he's the life. We receive life, eternal life, through him. 
He has life in Himself and He bestows life upon whom He wills. And that's a theme repeatedly affirmed throughout this gospel. The life that salvation brings is eternal life. And those who have eternal life will never perish. And it comes from Jesus who is the life. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus holds the keys of life and death in his hands. So Jesus said, I am the resurrection and life. Note, he next declares that whoever believes in him, even though they die, will live again. That is, they will be raised on the last day. And that's a great comfort to us, for there is a natural fear of death in all of us. The thought of death can be paralyzing. But this word from Jesus is designed to be energizing. If you are a believer, don't let the fear of death have sway over you. Look to Jesus and His promise of eternal life. That's where our hope lies. We are a people of hope, not of despair. We believe in Jesus. And even though we will die physically, we will live again because we will be raised on the last day. But then Jesus says something else. He declares that those who believe in him will never die. That almost sounds like a contradiction to what he just said, doesn't it? How can this be true? Lazarus was a believer, but he died. What does this mean? Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. To understand our Lord's words, we must distinguish between three kinds of death. And the Bible sets these forth. Physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. According to the Bible, when we are born, when we come into this world, we are spiritually dead. That's Ephesians 2.1. Dead in trespasses and sins. The lost man is not sick, he's dead, spiritually. And his soul needs to be quickened and made alive. He's dead. And what's the remedy for that? You must be born again, new life. So we're born spiritually dead. And apart from the coming of our Lord, we will all die physically. It is appointed Unto man wants to die. A day is coming for you and for me, apart from the Lord's coming, where our body will take its last breath and life in this world will be over. Well, there's spiritual death and physical death, but what happens then? The soul takes flight to an eternal abode. And for the believer, the soul enters heaven. For the unbeliever, the soul enters hell. 
the body of both wait in the grave until the great resurrection day and our eternal estate is then sealed forevermore. The Christian will pass through the door of physical death, but because he's experienced the new birth, he enters the joy of the Lord the moment he dies. There is then this thought of a believer never dying. A Christian has eternal life. And we experience that life now. And it cannot be touched by death. That is why we need not fear death. We talk about saving grace, living grace. We talk about dying grace. Lord, give me grace when I'm on my deathbed to believe the gospel and the truth of it and the, and the resurrection and eternal life. To die in the Lord is to enter the presence of God immediately. Death for the Christian is just a gateway into that eternal fellowship with God. Eternal life cannot be extinguished by physical death. Herman Bavnik said, In death, God is near to His own, so that it becomes for them a passage into eternal life. Well, after making this grand declaration, Jesus asked Martha, Do you believe this? He was asking, Martha, do you believe that I and I alone am the source of resurrection, power, and eternal life? Do you believe that in me death is defeated and eternal life is received? And Martha replied with a grand confession of faith. Look at it, verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe. And then she fills out what she believes. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. R.C. Sproul said, I don't think there's a greater confession of faith anywhere in the Scripture than this confession that Martha made in the midst of her sorrow. And I think he's right about that. She believed that he was the one who was the coming of the world. He's the Christ, the promised one, the Messiah, sent by God. There are actually three titles she uses here. Lord, Christ, Son of God. That's a full-orbed confession of faith. And she made this confession before Jesus raised her brother from the grave. She didn't know he was going to raise him. But she learned that he's the resurrection and the life. And that's where our hope is found. Have you made this confession? I love the confession of Peter. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we have a similar confession from the lips of Martha. 
Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe that He's the Christ, the promised Messiah? Do you believe He's the Son of God, which just means He's God come in the flesh? I hope that when you leave this place today, you can say with Martha, Yes, Lord, I believe. Whatever conflict may rage in your soul about anything, but especially about death, if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, you will find comfort and consolation that will soothe your soul and bring glory to God. Thank you, Father, for this portion of Scripture. We thank you how Martha came and met you on the road even before you got into Bethany and came with this resolute faith, not understanding all that was going on, but knowing that Jesus was Lord Christ, the Son of God. Give us the faith she had. And whatever difficulties we faced in life, may our hope be in all your promises, the good word of God that you have sent to us. May we, through faith, draw near to you even in this moment. May we be resolved in our hearts. And Lord, we can't make any resolution that's true and will stick without the aid of your Spirit. Come help us to be resolved in our heart, to walk in the light that we have, and to honor you, knowing that in all you do, you will receive the glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.